Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. We're coming to you semi-live today from the rooftop of the American Hindu Kush. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. And I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. We're coming at you from the peak of Whitetail Mountain, and we have some symbolic golden shovels to sell you today, Jeff. Uh, We are talking about (laughs) part five of the new season of Twin Peaks. So much to take in here. Jeff, were you excited that we got, uh, beyond all shadow of a doubt, full clarity on the golden shovels this week? I thought that was going to be a running mystery all the way up through part 18, but fair to say that particular mystery may have been solved. (laughs) (laughs) All your theories about the golden shovels were were totally wrong. Although I do agree with your point on Twitter that maybe we were essentially right <laughs> that the golden shovels were some metaphor for for some sort of like deep spiritual or political point. And it turns out Dr. Jacoby, aka Dr. Amp, definitely has a very strong point of view on the spiritual state of the world <laughs> these days. Not <laughs> only are they a metaphor, they're a metaphor you can purchase. It's everything that we need and want out of our pop culture these days. <laughs> right. Well, we definitely need to buy some of these shovels because we have a lot of stuff to dig through <laughs> in these these podcasts, and, and especially this week's episode, Case Files, was the technical title. You know, it seemed like not a lot happened. I mean, like as I kind of said in my mini recap, um, in advance of my longer recap, everything got got pushed forward by inches. And if it was Eraserhead Cooper's Dougie, he was shuffling forward by literal inches. Although they were meaningful inches, sometimes explosive inches, that the story totally expanded in scope. It was an episode that felt like busy work because that seemed to be the theme of the whole show. Um, Every scene was about people at work and maybe making some deep thematic point of how just the everyday grind, if you will, of our lives and work is is maybe some kind of spiritual degradation. I don't know. But it was also an episode in which the the tones of the show, there was a really well-balanced show tonally. You had a lot of comedy this week, but you also was, they dialed back up the menace and there was just a splash of supernatural. So it didn't feel like it, it advanced the story by leaps and bounds, but there were meaningful progressions and and I liked it. I liked it. I was surprised how much I liked it. Um, just generally, did you like it? I think this was my favorite episode so far, uh, despite or actually I think because of the fact that this has not been a show where plot wise I could say week to week like, wow, a whole lot has happened. But this episode, it just felt as if even given the leisurely pacing we've had so far, it felt to me as if certainly from a directorial standpoint, David Lynch was just finding a lot more of these moments that really stand out. Let's recap this thing. Let's recap by uh, moving city by city. I think this is a good way to do it. We're going to start in Vegas. And the very first scene of the show uh, was this interesting interaction between the, the two thugs that were scoping out and lying in wait for Dougie last week at at the Rancho Rosa complex. And they're still kind of staking out the house, waiting for Dougie to show up and get his car. They still want to complete this mission. And they made an interesting phone call too that this woman that was working in an office someplace, we didn't really get her name, 
but but I love the she's a worrier, and so let's call her the worrier. And the worrier apparently sits at a desk by a phone and worries about whether or not these assassins have done their job. And when they call to say that nope, uh, we you know we, we we haven't gotten them, she had to make a very interesting phone call, or actually no no not phone call, but she had to send a, a text by her by her like old school BlackBerry. I'm an urgent, or rather as she spelled it, argent. Uh, phone uh, message to what appeared to be a black box of some kind, a small black box, a pager maybe, in a wooden bowl somewhere in a basement in Buenos Aires, Argentina, as we would later find out, um, to notify whoever her boss is, uh, maybe the person responsible for the unsightly bruise on her chin, that Dougie is not yet dead technically, although he is. But what did you make of that curious moment, Darren? Well, uh, you know, Jeff, you had sort of put forward the idea in an earlier podcast that, you know, there's this weird layer to this show that seems to be circling around Dirty Cooper where technology almost seems to be magic somehow. And that scene specifically, uh, it felt to me like this show's portrayal of technology was like kind of everything that like my parents are very scared of when it comes to technology. Like it's just this weird mashup of like phones and pagers and like, you know, scary people in a room somewhere making international calls. I didn't really know what to make of that initially. <laughs> it, 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 it it certainly felt to me like there was a message being sent. And, you know, we'll kind of circle back around to that later when we got maybe a little more clarity. Well, what am I saying using a word like clarity? But we sort of got some furtherance <laughs> of this moment. But it, it certainly did feel to me that, um, you know, I, I had kind of said that I thought that maybe those two guys who were following Dougie represented some kind of like local mob influence and you would sort of put forward the idea that no it seems as if they're tied into Dirty Cooper and his machinations that felt like that was kind of a confirmation for me that felt like okay whoever is sort of after Dougie is tied into the sort of supernatural weirdo side of the show but then it was funny because as we kind of picked up with those guys later you know, there was this sort of wonderful shot inside of Rancho Rosa of them kind of very slowly driving down the street, looking and checking and making sure that Dougie's car, which has the incredible vanity plate that I'm going to get for myself, Dougie LV, checking and making sure that it was indeed still there. Then they, and you know, again, the shot kind of continued. They sort of like go off screen left. The camera slowly swings back, passing by the house with the 119 lady and her very tragically left alone son inside and we saw that there was another car seemingly sort of chasing after or at least you know on the trail of Dougie at this point the kind of sense of overwhelming menace and the feeling of sort of people seeming to close in on Dale was very very strong before I make this point I just want to say I'd love to know how long this shooting script was because there were just so many scenes I mean it was was, episode clocked in at about about 58 minutes, right? But there were just so many scenes that were just played out for these long beats. And, you know, per the rule that a shoot, that a script is like one page for every minute of screen time, you would think that script was probably 58 pages long. But I bet it was more like 20 <laughs> because <laughs> the, 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 so many scenes were just played out long. And that beat at Rancho Rosa was just a great example, but also something that I kind of love, which is, 
Lynch just trying to take the smallest of scenes and make it interesting, but in in his Lynchian way. So in that scene, all that you needed to do was just establish story-wise that there is these two cars that are cruising this house and, and, and looking out for Dougie. And you, you probably could have done that in what, like 15 seconds? I don't know. <laughs> um, if, uh, less. But instead, he kind of turns it into this long single take where, yeah, he kind of watches the car passes by and he swings over. And you see this black car coming in. There's just such a way in which Lynch uses color and pacing and sound to create dread. We would later learn that this black car is nothing really to fear too much. It was just a bunch of car thieves, a bunch of kid hoodlums looking to boost a car. But as the car kind of entered into frame and that heavy metal music, well, it was actually a, a song that was performed by the band called Uniform, I guess. Uh, and and the song was called Habit, but they're like a noise rock band. And anyway, so as this car is like moving into frame, I got this huge sense of dread, like what's inside this evil black car? But just to finish off what happened, turned out that they came to like boost that car. And we got that scene where the the little boy look out from across the street and his druggy mom passed out. He ends up coming over to take a look at that thing that the assassin thugs put underneath Dougie's car. Last week, he wanted to investigate it. All of a sudden, the black car guys drive up, get away, kid. And they try to boost the car and the car blows up. <laughs> and um, kid just kind of watches in horror and, and, and runs back to his mom who's now waking up. And, you know, so that was like, I I like that little beat. But what I think I liked most of all is that the show hasn't forgotten druggy mom and little neglected, abandoned PJ kid. And that it seems to kind of know that these are developing these characters or giving them more to do. Like, I I want more of these people. I kind of like the fact that we revisited them and they were just not just this one-off little uh, micro portrait of despair um, in this foreclosed like housing community. But, but yes, uh, the people who are hunting Dougie certainly mean business. Meanwhile, Dale Cooper slash Dougie, we'll, we'll call him Dougie for right now because it's just so wonderful. Yes. He is blissfully unaware of any of the forces that are kind of circling in on him. Uh, we kind of picked up with him leaving his house. Uh, his wife sort of was just was very insistent that, you know, Dougie, like, you know, you've won all this money, like $425,000 or thereabouts. You have to go into the office, call these people, you know, settle all these debts. And she also said very casually, and please, Dougie, no more drinking and gambling. Like, it was almost sort of like this was the honeymooners, and she was kind of very lightly sort of you know, telling her husband, now, Dougie, like, no more getting us in debt for hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> there was a great little beat that I think we can really interpret very deeply for trying to get a, a greater understanding of what's going on with the Dale Cooper inside of Dougie. He was kind of looking at uh, Sonny Jim, who was sort of sitting patiently, sort of almost almost lazily waiting in the car and that kind of led Dougie to start crying there were actually kind of tears in his eyes this sense of sense of loss maybe it was sort of very hard to tell I, I love how Kyle McLaughlin is giving seemingly like five different performances right now in the show I love it with Dougie there's almost this sense of like almost like a silent comedian sometimes like just this incredible openness of emotion like you know you you, you don't need to scratch too deeply to find kind of fear or humor or anything Thing like that. I just want to let you know that every time I go to work, I look at my children and cry too. No, I'm just kidding. Is that right? 
I jump for joy. I can't wait to get away from them. Every time, every time I go to work, I look at my cat and I and I cry, and she doesn't notice me because she does not acknowledge my existence. Um, but so then we we follow Dougie to his insurance agency, Lucky Seven, I believe it was called. Yes. So on the kind of tip of uh, revived Agent Cooper as Silent Clown, anytime <laughs> coffee shows up. Kyle McLaughlin gets this look on his face like he is, I mean, it's almost, it, it's just so cartoonish. And what's great is that because, you know, coffee is, you know, the only good thing in this world, Jeff, <laughs> but whenever he follows the coffee, it does take him where he has to get. You know, there was this great moment where he got on the elevator, kind of following one of his coworkers who seemed to be an intern, <laughs> or at least was certainly the sort of coffee getting person of the agency, followed him up uh, the elevator. He sort of like, you know, stubbornly kind of took the coffee and, and was drinking it. That's when we noticed that there was one cup of coffee with Darren written on the side, which I interpreted as a specific message to me. I'm still kind of analyzing that. Me and my therapist will definitely go over that uh, th- uh, this week. <laughs> the, the, the sequence of the sort of board meeting, I, I thought was just so wonderful and the way that it sort of built and built was so great. Yes. Uh, and also this featured Tom Sizemore, who I, I was trying to recall, I guess this is actually the first time Sizemore has worked with David Lynch, which is so crazy to me because he seems like, I mean, this is, as a huge compliment, he seems like a incredibly Lynchian figure like in real life. Um, but like, uh, how did you kind of feel about, about this scene, about the sort of world around Dougie that we sort of got the sense of here? Well, a couple things. I mean, you know, I've always really enjoyed Tom Sizemore as a performer, kind of more famous to us as as a a member of Michael Mann's troupe of actors. And if you followed Tom's career or if you just wish to Google it, uh, you know that he's had a lot of kind of like, you know, personal issues and problems over the years. So for Tom's first line in this show to come up to the, the guy he thinks is Dougie and put his arms around him and go, hey, look who's back from Benderville, <laughs> was, was, I almost thought was like a was an inside joke or or maybe even a an ad lib by Tom um but he he was great he's always great um and almost unrecognizable i i didn't really know until like i saw the credits and saw oh wait a minute tom sizemore was in this episode and he immediately gives this really great sketch of this insurance agent who is most likely pretty dirty and not to be screwed with um, he reported to his boss that um, they were going to have to pay out on a couple claims. Um, the boss, who had this amazing name, Bushnell Mullins, who used to be a boxer, battling <laughs> Bud. I love that. He was a little confused by this. Well, we have to pay this out. And Tony, I believe that's Tom Sizemore's name, or Anthony. Anthony says, yeah, we're, you know, we're going to have to pay it out. And Cooper saw this like green flash on his face, as green as his, his, his jacket. And he goes, you know, he's lying. And, you know, you wondered if like that association between Cooper kind of like demonstrating an essential Cooperism, we remember from the original show, Twin Peaks, that Cooper was very keen at just being able to listen to someone and kind of go, you're not telling the truth. Um, so he's like getting his powers back. But that green flash that predated that, that preceded that moment where he saw that light, like, I don't know if they're like, if it was just a psychological effect as his mind is coming back and his personality is coming back and his personal powers are coming back, or if he's being led by magical forces or something like that. But that was an interesting moment. But clearly, Anthony did, did not appreciate being called out a liar, and, and, and neither did Bushnell. 
hey, if you're going to call out my top agent on a lie, you better, better be able to back it up. Instead, you know, Dougie just kind of fell back into that silence. And uh, that led to a punishment. Uh, he had to go home and read up on all of these case files and become a master of them, um, or else he wasn't going to have much of a future um, at this company. I'm again struck by the implicit compare, contrast, mirror world things going on here. You know, in the life that we used to know, Agent Cooper, he was this this man of justice, this uh, man of principles and ideals. Uh, he was an agent, but he was an agent of the law, agent of the truth, agent of the good. Um, he was an FBI agent. And now here in this sort of like underworld new life that he finds himself in as, as Vegas as another guy, he's an insurance agent <laughs> and in a very slippery, duplicitous business and um, so I was kind of struck by the, the metaphor of all of this and the, the compare and contrast of the worlds. And that kind of just really even more reinforces our desire to see Cooper restored to his senses and his mind and his personality and maybe even kind of get back to Twin Peaks where he belongs. And I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on, on one of the more haunting images of the episode that kind of spoke back to all of these themes, Cooper's fixation with that statue out there on the plaza outside the building of this sort of this lawman figure, or certainly a gunman figure, a figure of the old West um, with a cowboy hat pointing a gun back toward the building. Um, what did you make of that statue? Well, so two things. First, and we discussed this a little bit in a past episode, the way that Lynch is sort of choosing to film Las Vegas is sort of fascinating to me. I loved, part of the things that I loved about kind of like all the shots kind of in that interesting kind of courtyard that seemed to be in this large business park was you sort of had this incredible foregrounding of this building that, one of those buildings that's so modern, it seems like it, it, seems like it could have been built yesterday, you know, lots of windows. Meanwhile, way off in the distance, barely visible was the actual kind of you know topography of Las Vegas that you know just like a slight hint of the desert in the background you know almost like this story being told about like the natural world and how it's been invaded by the modern world it's a very kind of like you know Terrence Malicky thing but like I, I do think that Lynch is kind of playing with that iconography because he's literally playing with the iconography of the old west in the form of that statue and you know it felt to me as if on one hand there's this notion of is Dale's sort of starting to reclaim himself and the fact that, you know, when people kind of say things that resonate with him, you know, coffee, agent, case files, is he kind of putting himself back together, finding those puzzle pieces? But I was also thinking about um, something that actually uh, no less a source than David Lynch told you, Jeff, when you interviewed him uh, for the website, where in a very ambiguous but still helpful way he sort of framed what's going on with Dale slash Dougie as coming into the world as a new life learning your likes and dislikes and doing the best you can to find your way and what struck me was here is a sort of almost blank book person um sort of looking at this statue this statue is like you know almost kitschy except it's very it's also very corporate as well um and you know of course it's a creation of this old west iconography which is itself already very problematic and just the way that you know our beloved dale cooper was kind of looking at it it felt like there was a sense of loss but also like he was still being somehow inspired by it i don't know it, it, it i was surprised how many kind of emotions it conjured up and i just loved how the credits literally sort of rolled over him 
kind of staring up at it and, and kind of like touching the guy's boots. It it felt as if the story of that shot, at least, was simultaneously like, you know, is he sort of sad for what's been lost on a greater national level and also within his own personality? And in turn, is there a sense that, you know, he is going to kind of reclaim that? So it, it just felt like getting a lot out of, you know, a few shots of Kyle McLaughlin looking up at a statue of a cowboy. I, I, I've been kind of pondering that all night. Um, but was that kind of your interpretation or, you know, did you have anything more intelligent? Oh, totally. I think you summarize it well and to kind of like just add on to that real quick i was struck by this cowboy pointing a gun back at the office building where he works and so you have the in this image like lynch framing this uh this this tension this conflict between whatever the cowboy represents and whatever the office building represents and if that building wasn't there, the image would be different because the cowboy would be pointing his gun toward the horizon and it would and there would be some almost maybe some linkage between the whole mythology of the American West. But yes, there is this critique of modern society, the a critique of the West, the and 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 it's being pitted against the ideals of whatever the cowboy represents as if to say that whatever uh, America stands for were a, a far cry from it or or whatever. But yes, the, oh, I, I talked about this somewhat in my recap last week. There is this very subtextual, and maybe not even subtextual, but textual critique of Twin Peaks America taking place here. But I love that image too. Just like like Cooper obsessing over the statue is something I'll be mulling for a while. Um, two other things about Vegas that we should touch on. One is uh, another scene at work, so to speak. We revisited uh, Jade, um, our, our our friendly neighborhood prostitute, <laughs> and she was getting her. She was at a car wash, getting her her Jeep washed, and the attendant found Cooper's key to the Great Northern on the floor there. We didn't know that he had dropped it and left it behind there, but he did, and. Um, Jade put it in a mailbox to, as if to mail it back to the Great Northern up in Twin Peaks. So, so we'll we'll see what what that choice ends up triggering, and how the people up in Twin Peaks will respond to the arrival of Agent Cooper's key. I'm I'm looking forward to that. And before we leave Vegas, another scene at a different workplace introduced two major scary villainous characters. We return to the Silver Mustang Casino where casino bosses played by James Belushi and Robert Nepper showed up to hold their employees accountable for letting Cooper win 30 jackpots and $425,000. <laughs> and they did not treat their employees rather kindly for this and ended up beating them up. They suspected, in fact, that the casino manager like was in on it or let Cooper do it. Regardless, they, they beat him up severely. And they they kicked him out, told him never come back to Vegas. That was the only scene that we got. And just two things about that scene I would like to comment on. One is is that uh, Nepper and especially James Belushi were immediately cast a, a huge impression. You know, it's not hard for Nepper to do villainy. He's been doing it all his career and doing it great in a variety of assortment of bad guys, whether it's on Prison Break or iZombie. Or, or in a short-lived TV show called Cult. He's been fantastic. 
I'm really hoping we get even more Jim Belushi here. I would like to be able to write pieces that says this is the reinvention of Jim uh, James Belushi. Um, he cast a, a great degree of menace. They they seem to be channeling two different kinds of of Lynchian villainous archetypes. They immediately reminded me of Robert Loggia from Lost Highway, but they also reminded me of the mysterious, evil businessmen, bondsmen, studio executives of Mulholland Drive that were bullying Justin Thoreau into casting a certain girl for a part. So Lynch has this sort of archetype. And then they also brought in with them into this room these three women dressed in like pink uh, dresses like candy perfume girls slash like casino floor attendants, the things playboy bunny outfits. I don't know. Um, and I just love the constant cutaways to them just hanging out and drifting and playing with their hands as, as those men just beat the crap out of that poor uh, casino manager. Um, did you have any thoughts on Nepper and Belushi? Well, okay. First of all, this was Jim Belushi's best work since Thief. I'm just going to put that (laughs) out there. Immediately, very, very menacing. I'm not, by the way, not throwing anything under the bus. He's incredible in Thief, and I just loved him in this scene. The way this was shot and like the lighting just like above them, with vintage Lynch to me. But to cut from there to you know a local insurance agency and a a nice housing development and a bad housing development. Like I, I, I love all of this. I. Certainly was not expecting there to be, you know, so many slash Eddie scenes at all set in Las Vegas in this season of of Twin Peaks. But each episode, each part, I am liking it more and more. So, yeah, a lot, lot to kind of like, you know, jump out at you in, in that well, scene. And, you know, interesting, we're talking about Vegas, the symbolic value of Vegas. It's, it's literally south of Twin Peaks. So it's this underworld to Twin Peaks. But as we kind of find Twin Peaks in this episode... Um, you know, it still in some ways has this idyllic charm, but more and more we're getting the sense that Twin Peaks itself is is beset by modern problems and, and needs some saving itself. Just big picture wise, w- what was your impressions? We got a lot of Twin Peaks this week, didn't we? Uh this was so great. You know, we had check-ins with lots of original characters. Loved seeing Mike the football guy. Has apparently done pretty well for himself. Uh, there was a great scene of him chewing out uh, a new character uh, whose name I'm forgetting, but he'll be Steven. important. So Steven. I'll just call him Banshee from First Steven. Class. Steven. Yeah. I think Banshee from First Class. Everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, no, the, the great actor Caleb Landry-Jones, recently seen in the film Get Out, really having a moment right now. Uh, Steven got chewed out by Mike, of all people, about his resume. <laughs> we had a great check-in back at the Double R Diner with Shelley and Norma, who have not really moved anywhere, but it's very clear that the world has kind of moved all around them. And there was even, I thought, a nice moment that made it seem as if, like, the fact that they have not moved gives them a weird amount of strength. Yeah. Um, you know, there was that fantastic sequence of Shelley's daughter coming in to ask for money, played by Amanda Seyfried, where we ultimately found out that, indeed, she is married to Banshee from First Class. And, I mean, the kind of <laughs> fallout from that sequence, I think, was my main take takeaway from the episode you already kind of wrote about this a little bit jeff uh you know how did you kind of feel about our kind of introduction to this wing of modern day twin peaks yeah i'm well if, just to stay with the with the steven or banshee from first class i like how that was we're, we're gonna call him <laughs> uh, but but steven and becky i believe is shelly's daughter's name and th- they're the latest you know in a 
it seems like every generation of Twin Peaks give us troubled teenagers or young people with drug problems who are profoundly miserable and, 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 and numbing their their coming of age and inevitable descent into the degrading workforce adult world <laughs> with drugs and, and all of that and perhaps being preyed upon by, by other forces. But yes, so we have this new couple and they, they seem to be maybe genuinely in love with each other. Although I got to say, Stephen is so scuzzy and scruffy. I was like, you're going to make out with him in that, 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 that red, red velvet interior of that firebird there. Becky, come on. You could do better. But she seemed to be kind of really interested in him. They snorted coke. And there was this brief pause, and he starts kind of like buttering her up with sweet nothings and telling her how he's going to take her out to dinner and how beautiful she is and how sexy she is and all of that. And then all of a sudden the Coke hits and she kind of gets this real wild, joyous edge to her. And and we get this um, great scene where now they're just driving down the street and uh, and we get this shot, uh, this overhead shot close up on her face as she's just tripping out in this sort of ecstatic moment of reverie, her eyes to the sky and she's her, her red lipstick lips just peeled back in a smile and she's inside that car with its red interior with all of her. I just got a huge Laura Palmer vibe uh, from her in this moment. Mm-hmm. Red, you know, Laura kind of like also having drug problems. Laura also obviously kind of like, a you know, toggling between ecstasy and misery of her young life. And in that red interior of that car evoked the red room. I immediately thought... You know, it was a great, vivid character introduction for her. One of those moments where if we never came back to her, I would totally believe it. It's just Lynch kind of creating this little slice of life moment with these characters. But I got the sense maybe that this was meant to be a vivid character introduction and flag plant to say, no, she's important and her her arc is going to be important. And But the, the associations with Laura Palmer immediately made me wonder if she's doomed. Yes, yeah, I mean, like, that scene conjured up a lot of the mood of Fire Walk With Me, yeah. which I love so much, this weird feeling. It's it's sort of this particular feeling that someone's corrosion is also their ascension. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, she's, like, in this moment, it's just clear to everyone all around her, and there was that great moment of Norma and Shelley kind of staring at, out the window at them. And, of course, Banshee from First Class is like, oh, they're they're watching us and you know there's a sense of him of sort of the paranoia and overwhelming doom that we feel so much you know following Dougie right now but in this case we know Norma and Shelley we know that they are in fact these sort of avatars of at least you know somewhat goodness here or, you know certainly people who who know when something bad is going to happen because perhaps they've had bad things happen to them in their own life and they recognize the signs and so to move from this moment of kind of darkness and even kind of a downward spiral to that close Close up on her face. So interesting. Now, Jeff, do we think is she Bobby's daughter? Obviously, there's been no real clarity around what Shelley and Bobby's relationship was, but like, I'm not sure we've heard anything about her father yet, have we? I, I was trying to decide because that would lend this whole sequence even more weird, kind of mythic resonance. If she is, in fact, you know, here she is, this sort of young, almost innocent, in a kind of romance with someone who seems much less innocent, and you know, that obviously has all these interesting callbacks to the previous generation of Twin Peaks. Do you think is that is that a possibility? 
right now? Yeah, I definitely thought that too. I, uh, the mystery of her parentage is going to be interesting. And yeah, these these recurring motifs through the lineage of characters that we know. So, you know, Bobby and Shelley, their own sort of like, you know, troubled romance and relationship. Bobby also messed up in drugs and drug dealing. Um, and we, we would later find out in another scene in the episode that, you know, yeah, again, the whole drug trade problem is is back and, and been plaguing Twin Peaks. And now, and now Bobby Briggs, also a sheriff's deputy that's in charge of monitoring tra- drug trade routes. Um, so, yes, these <laughs> these troubled people that kind of grow up to be responsible adults and, and maybe trying to atone for their wild youth and mistakes of the youth by their current jobs and their current responsibilities, but now their children um, following in their footsteps and causing problems. Yeah, a little too early yeah, to, to, to assess where all of this is going, but definitely super intriguing for sure. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. You know what's even more important than finding your evil doppelganger? Finding great talent for your business. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. ZipRecruiter is different. It's not like the other job sites. It's better. It doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. Right now... Our listeners, that's you, can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Twin Peaks. Jeff, let's talk about the most important sequence. Well, let's say TV history, but certainly <laughs> of TV this week. We got, it seems like every two episodes now, we're getting a check-in with Dr. Jacoby. Or, as he's better known to the denizens of the internet, or at least, like, the internet within Twin Peaks. It seems like he's he's very, very big among the sort of internet TV watchers of Twin Peaks. Dr. Amp. We got a great check-in with him doing what seems to be his sort of weekly rant. Um, the, the <laughs> so, what I loved about this sequence, two things. First, I loved just how... You know, there were moments where it just seemed as if what he was ranting about, he was sort of almost spiraling out of control and like, you know, losing the thread a little bit. But we kept on cutting around and in glorious HD, you could clearly see that the whole time he was reading from a yes. script. Um, f- follow up, though, I-, I-, I did love how, you know, you know, you sort of saw him begin his sort of, you know, Internet rant web series, uh, you know, weekly me versus the government type of show. And you're thinking like, oh, well, boy. I mean, Dr. Jacoby, you've really gone downhill. Nobody, you know, surely nobody except like some lonely souls somewhere are watching this thing. And apparently it's like appointment viewing for Twin Peaks characters because we saw, you know, Jerry Horn, who apparently lives out in the woods somewhere. We saw him kind of spark up as as he was watching it. And then we saw this incredible shot of Nadine first time she's appeared in this new season sort of watching this show with this 
sort of like delightful smile on her face as if she was watching like, you know, a soap opera or you know some some much more endearing TV show. I just I love the sort of, you know, setup of of all of this, but you know, what was your kind of interpretation of it, it's it's very clear that like what's happening with Dr. Jacoby if only because he was the first person we saw in the sort of proper narrative of this season. It's clear that, like, this must be building somewhere, he said, realizing it, it, it might be building nowhere. But what was your kind of feeling about this whole moment with Dr. Amp? Well, uh, a couple things. I, I like how you focused on the reactions to Dr. Amp. And I, for, in, in Nadine, uh, I got the sense of a, of a person who probably knows Dr. Jacoby for a while, Um they're both residents of this town of Twin Peaks. And I got the sense of a an eccentric woman admiring another eccentric kindred soul. I don't know if she believes in all of his <laughs> rhetoric politically or, or, or ideologically, but I think that she just kind of admired the sheer, like, crazy eccentricity. You just let your freak flag fly, like, fellow quirky soul. And Jerry is probably aligned more politically these days, at least, with with <laughs> Dr. Amp's message, which, yeah, was this anti-big government, but more specifically anti-big business, corporate greed, spiritual polluter, like environmental polluter, truth polluting. Um, his rhetoric, his ideology kind of played for laughs, but I actually probably think that the show is dead serious about it in terms of its worldview, mm -hmm. its political worldview. We, we remember that uh, David Lynch was a big supporter of Bernie Sanders. So I like the idea that, that Dr. Amp is like this Bernie bro that is sort of extrapolated into wild, crazy <laughs> hippie person, but also has enough of a sense of humor about itself to know that this kind of extremism is obviously really crazy. But yeah, I kept on spinning these conspiracy theories. And again, his rhetoric compare and contrast to what's going on in Vegas and what how Lynch and Frost are are symbolically treating Vegas as this the symbol of the American dream gone wrong and gone spoiled uh, and so like Dr. Amp's sort of very funny out there rant ideology uh, kind of speaks into that. I, I loved everything he was wearing. He was wearing this like this theater usher's jacket uh, over his painting <laughs> overalls. Um, it looks like, and uh, and he had this cap that I I can't quite place, but I really loved. He had his kitschy Statue of Liberty lamp behind him. He had this this thing he cranked that played his theme song. He had cosmic glasses, I believe he called them cosmic glasses, that allowed him to see through the lies of the world. Um, and, and I totally want those. <laughs> but what steals the show and captures our imagination is the revelation of, of, of why he was painting those shovels gold. We saw him take one out and, and hit it like a gong, and he queued up an infomercial commercial that he had made for himself. And apparently he sells these golden shovels as a souvenir of his show, a memento of his show, and a piece of art from his show. If you, too, buy his golden shovel for $29.99, you, too, can dig yourself out of the shit of modern world. And we get that great little shot of him in his commercial up to his knees and mud, uh, which was symbolically supposed to be crap, I guess, digging himself out. And all of a sudden he magically appears above it. <laughs> 
like it was just so crazy and and lovely and weird and funny and i and i totally dug it yeah i mean i mean we can all agree we all want to buy those shovels now like it was a success that was the most successful infomercial that i've seen my entire <laughs> life so i am all the way in on the shovel buying at least not so sure about the politics um before we leave Twin Peaks, Jeff, uh, we should get into there was a musical number at the Roadhouse this week. Uh, when we went there, I initially got, I now get kind of physically scared when I see that kind of establishing shot outside yeah. of the Roadhouse because it means that, like, like I kind of assume it means, like, oh, no, the show is oh, totally. ending. But clearly having established that rhythm, the show is now kind of playing with it because the show did not end with this week's musical performance. Instead, we actually spent some time there. And, you know... One thing that I kind of forget about David Lynch, because, you know, I am a sort of grown-up now, and I tend to assume that I can't really be shocked by too many things, or at least, like, I'm less shockable than I was when I was younger. I, I do forget how there are moments that David Lynch conjures up that are just so horrifying, and the sort of creation of this sequence built to something that was one of the weirdest and most horrifying things I've seen in a really long time, and just, like, the rhythm of it, and, you know, the of it, we saw this strange guy sitting at a table by himself, smoking in front of a no smoking sign. You know, guy comes over, tells him to stop. Another guy who works at the bar kind of comes over. They exchange what looks like a large number of dollar bills. The first guy, just a gross looking dude, just sits there looking like he's in charge of the world. There's a few kind of young ladies at the table next to him. One of them tries to just very innocently flirt with him, and you kind of think you're watching the big beginning of this sort of very noirish back and forth you know anytime that you know two people are flirting by asking each other for a light or for a cigarette there's always this sort of old school romanticism to it and that scene so quickly progressed to being uncomfortable to watch the way he just kind of grabbed her and I mean I'm not sure I can even say what he said to her but he said I'm gonna laugh when I fuck you bitch that was the most horrifying like I'm I needed to like 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 take a shower yeah. after that it was just like so freaky how did you i mean like, like like jeff it's clear that like that's gonna be getting back into what you were saying about like some sort of drug trade or some sort of bad trade coming through twin peaks but like that that for me was like a full bob moment of twin peaks horror did you kind of feel oh, that way to to a degree that i kind of wondered if we were looking at a, a new black lodge demon there maybe not doesn't have to be i wonder if we're supposed to be thinking that but yeah, you got a hard hit of classic Lynch evil that is just unapologetically repugnant, corrupt, misogynistic, uh, sexual predator evil. The the credits, I couldn't really tell who that actor was or what his character's name is. He made a vivid impression in a really disturbing way in an episode filled with varied tones and eclectic tones, this one almost hit it too hard. Maybe because I was expecting an ending. I exactly had the same thought as you where like, Oh, we're back at the bar, another band like, Oh, we're ending already. No, um, we're going to have this extended beat and we're going to have this extended beat with this scene with this, this guy who just radiates pure evil and who's going to, you know, disobey laws and subvert laws and then just subvert people and prey on people and declare his worst intentions on people. Um, just a little caveat, which thematically kind of like 
um, speaks to the subversion of everything good in the scene that's represented by his evil, but two things. One is um, the bar manager comes over and tells him to knock it off with the smoking. He disregards that. So then he brings uh, the, the other guy who comes over, I believe is Deputy Chad from the police station, the the guy that was making oh. fun of, of, of Andy and, and Hawk in last week's episode. Um, so that scene that planted a flag for Chad, again, Lynch and Frost doing this great job with their very scattered, sprawling narrative of making vivid character impressions early in one episode so that you could start paying them off and developing them later. But yeah, I think that guy, that e- evil guy, evil smoking guy, we'll call him, who gave him his pack of Marlboros uh, that was stuffed with cash. Um, he gave it to Chad. I think that was that was Chad the cop. But Kind of like then kind of illuminating, literally, um, the, the whole Red Room, Black Lodge resonance of all of that. As this scene is playing out, we're cutting back to the band that's playing on stage, and you're getting that red light strobe effect on the band that we commonly see in the Red Room. And I half expected all of a sudden the, the, the roadhouse there, the gun gun bar, to transform as it did in the earlier episodes of original series of Twin Peaks with when Julie Cruz would play on stage and all of a sudden it would shift into that sort of red room space. I, I, I fully imagined as that evil scene was playing out that it was going to go full red room supernatural evil there with maybe that guy revealing some Bob-esque demon inside him. I don't know. It was vivid. It was uncomfortable. I like how you put that. It was uncomfortable to watch. But clearly, there, there's trouble. We got trouble right here in Twin Peaks City. We got trouble. We got trouble, yeah. And 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 also some, some police corruption. And of course, I think that that bar is now owned by like the third Renault brother. We <laughs> haven't really seen that much of him besides that one quick shot. But like just all these forces circling around. Um, Jeff, I, I think uh, we can maybe skip over our deep dive into the problems of the uh, old married Truman couple as, as delightful as it was to kind of Get more They're gonna need a bigger bucket on though. the new Sheriff Truman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're gonna need a bigger bucket. We can all agree on that. That's that's the main takeaway from this episode. But let's shift gears to the Black Hills of South Dakota, or at least adjacent to the Dakotas. Um, we picked up with the investigation that way back when we thought there'd be one like, you know, basically one story this season we, we thought would be kind of like defining the investigation into the mysterious body um, found in Buckhorn. Uh, you kind of mentioned this in your recap. Great sequence with the lady doing the autopsy who apparently does stand up on weekends. <laughs> you know, she decided that uh, someone definitely cut this man's head off, which again, Jeff, we need to take our clarity or we can get it. So <laughs> Good that we kind of got that fully established. Um, inside of this man's kind of kind of bloated body, uh, that's a corpse thing, not a fat shaming thing. Um, she found a a ring, and on that ring was inscribed the words "To Dougie with Love, Janie E." Okay, we are starting to get these different plot lines kind of coming together. I am very excited for this. This scene in South Dakota, South Dakota or North Dakota? Let's go with Dakota. Let's just go with Dakota. (laughs) I'm already forgetting which Dakotas. But yeah, with Constance, I I had thought that maybe we were were kind of done with the Dakotas after last week where we found out that there were the the prints uh, that that were found inside that room uh, with the decapitated 
body and the, the woman's head, etc., belonged to Major Briggs, and there was a little slight development on that this week. But I thought we were kind of done with that place. But yeah, I got the sense, Darren, because of Constance, who I now am totally in love with, and those kind of deadpan detectives, I wouldn't mind if we keep on going back to Dakota all the time. And I kind of want even more of them. But about (laughs) the decapitated body, my initial take was that this was a new body. And because it was a new body, I thought we were actually dealing with Dougie's corpse. So as I kind of speculated in my, my, my first quick react to this episode, I was wondering, oh, like when Dougie got sucked into the Black Lodge last week and his head popped off, did they dump the body in the, in, 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 in the Dakotas um, on, at, back at Dirty Cooper's stomping grounds? Hold on a second. I like the idea that the Black Lodge, an extra dimensional like plane of existence that seems to have existed for untold eons, you know, longer than our universe has. I like the idea that when they kill someone, they dump them in the Dakotas. That's their that's their go to. They dump bodies. And before we get to the dirty Cooper of it all and close out the show, let's just note and wrap up the whole major Briggs of it all that we got this quick cutaway. At the near the end of the episode, to the Pentagon, <laughs> when we got this, when we got the establishing shot of the Pentagon, and we just saw like what was it, Arlington City, Virginia, the <laughs> Pentagon. I just started laughing. <laughs> I don't know why. I just the, the, the ever expanding <laughs> scope of the show has become a source of humor from like oh another place, more characters. <laughs> like the Pentagon has something to do with this. Inside the Pentagon, we got this character named Cindy, who reports to her superior, played by Ernie Hudson, I believe. That, oh, someone has uh, been trying to access our database. They got a fingerprint hit on on Major Briggs, and they're trying to find out some information to him. And apparently this is the 16th time that it has happened in the past 22, 25 some odd years. And they definitely find this weird and suspicious. And they said probably nothing. But Cindy, like, go to the Dakotas and figure out what's going on and report back. And if we are on to something, we got to tell the FBI. So... Um, and, and I'd love to hear your quick take on this real quick because – so Cindy's on her way to Dakotas. But again, uh, you texted me last night as you were watching this episode, this interesting motif that the, the certain characters that are played by, unfortunately, like actors who are no longer with us, so can't necessarily reprise their roles in the show, you would think – they loom large as, 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 as people of great significance to this story. Yeah, I mean, like, you've got Major Briggs, who everyone knows was my favorite character on the original series. You've got Bob, who we'll talk about in a second. And you've got Philip Jeffries. And all three of these characters got huge shout-outs or at least, like, you know, local area messages being sent to them. And I just find it so... Interesting, and I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. I mean, like, you know, tragically, there are two actors who are on this show who have unfortunately since passed on since they filmed their scene. But I'm just fascinated that, like, you know, given that the kind of larger myth arc of this story now seems to be focusing in on these three characters, all of whose, the actors who portrayed them originally have unfortunately passed on. And so I assume they can't really appear. But I say that, but of course... 
Major Briggs did kind of appear in that sort of like large head flowing through the spacescape back in part three saying Blue Rose. But then, of course, um, you know, Philip Jeffries almost seems like he is the kind of Thanos of this season <laughs> so far. He's just constantly being kind of referred to and like everything seems to lead back to him. And, you know, as, as we discussed with our guest Damon Lindelof last week, it's like, are they going to recast him and say he had plastic surgery? Is there actually going to be some sort of on-screen appearance of David Bowie as an as an image? You know, you'd sort of mentioned, Jeff, before the season began, like, are there more scenes that were shot with him for Fire Walk With Me that might be integrated. I'm, 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 I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah, you definitely have these themes in this season of the frailty of life, the fragility of life, the spirit world versus the material world, death, reincarnation. This show explicitly and implicitly has mortality on its mind. So I do find it somewhat thematically like appropriate that looming large in this show so far are these actors um, that we know are not with us. And you kind of wonder where it's leading for all of our listeners who are maybe, I don't want to assume that you've all seen Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. So we will just do the service here of saying that is the significance of Buenos Aires. Um, if you don't know this, which is this character, Philip Jeffries, played by David Bowie, who was in Firewalk with me, this teleporting, cracked um, FBI agent whose job it was to infiltrate the Black Lodge. But he is connected to Buenos Aires. He he was traveling back and forth between Philadelphia and Buenos Aires. So hence the mythological significance of Argentina and the Philip Jeffries character. Um, yeah, and at this point, I almost feel like the show is encouraging us to at least want to see David Bowie show up. And you wonder if it's holding some scenes in its back pocket with Bowie. I would think that could be really powerful for this show if if we actually get that. Um, But I'm actually open to the idea that we're going to see these characters reincarnated in other forms. If they, you know, as I speculated in my brief react, like, do they have doppelgangers in the world now? Have they reincarnated themselves in other forms? Is there another Jeffries, uh, you know, surviving out there? Um, Has has Major Briggs reincarnated in another form? And we're going to see him, but... Um, but yeah, I'm I'm very intrigued by this theme. But speaking of all of these themes, let's switch to, to Dirty Cooper, um, who we found in his jail cell, just uh, like cooling his heels. And then we get this, you know, interesting early moment where he's just laying there. And then he says something like, and now the food comes. And then all of a sudden he hears his guard approach. He's like, he, he's either like, he's, he's, he's very familiar with, with the schedule of his day of his regimented experience, or this creature of appetite as sort of psychically linked to feeding times. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but his, <laughs> his food was delivered. Um, he goes to wash his hands. He looks at himself in the mirror. Suddenly we get this flashback scene to that, that great moment in the series finale of the original series with evil doppelganger Cooper laughing madly with Bob. Um, and, and we get this kind of moment on this kind of like quick but strange and uh, scary loop we cut back to 
Dirty Cooper in his cell looking himself in the mirror with those dark black eyes. He's just looking and all of a sudden his face starts to distort and I got the sense that we were seeing uh, Demon Bob kind of like pressing through his flesh and Dirty Cooper says something like, uh, you're still there, good. And so it was like, there, there are two ways to interpret that scene. One is that maybe after the uh, last week's business in which the Black Lodge tried to claim Dirty Cooper and suck him back in, Dirty Cooper has been out of sorts. We saw him slurring his words last week. So, so maybe he's just checking in with himself and making sure that he's all still there and, and Bob's still there and, and all of that. I also maybe wondered, and this was my initial reaction, but this may be just way too complicated of a way to read the scene, that maybe over the years, Dirty Cooper has lost touch with Bob a little bit. Um, as he's just become his own evil, like, thing of the world. And so he was just kind of, you know, making sure that that Bob was still there. But it was a it was a pretty chilling, effective scene and a good way for the show to kind of, like, just remind us of, of the construction that is Dirty Cooper. What I find interesting about this, Jeff, and we are, of course, like, you know, about to wrap up, interesting that... I think that I certainly had always assumed that the interpretation of that kind of final scene of Twin Peaks season two was that Bob had kind of taken over Dale Cooper. And it's very clear now that, you know, the doppelganger is a kind of separate entity, I think. Maybe separate is is too strong of a word, but certainly there is the doppelganger and there is Bob. They're kind of sharing this same body or Bob is just far in the sort of background of him, this sort of like, this sort of lingering figure I, you know very interested by this because I'm still not quite sure what to make of all of it um, but uh, this sort of segues into to kind of knit all this together we get a scene of Dirty Cooper finally getting his phone call you know uh, of course it's all being recorded he seems very aware of it he kind of stares up at a surveillance camera there needs to be at least one kind of you know motif of a surveillance camera in every part of this season apparently he kind of mentions uh, you know maybe he should call Mr. Strawberry uh, and I, I I mean given the cast of this show I was honestly like oh my god is Daryl Strawberry going to be in this show also that would be shocking um, but no uh, you know that seemed to be some kind of reference and that made the sort of uh, local warden, I think his name was, or, or maybe he's an actual warden, that made him very nervous. Like, uh, th- that seemed to be some reference that only he really understood, um, as if, like, you know, Dirty Cooper was... I kind of in- interpreted that as, like, Dirty Cooper was reading some dark secret of that man that nobody else knew, and that was a message straight to him. Um, but then we get the, the, the sort of great moment of magic technology, or anyhow, you know, some, you know something that wouldn't have seemed out of place on CSI Cyber where uh, Dirty Cooper manages to type lots of numbers quickly on the phone and that makes the entire complex go crazy and there's loud sounds. I initially thought he was staging some sort of prison escape but it seemed to me as if that was kind of just a distraction, a way to kind of cover that he had a message to deliver into the phone and the message of course was the cow jumped over the moon. Smash cut Buenos Aires, Argentina exterior, day 
uh, we see another one of those. I'm so glad that you said it was a pager. I thought it was just sort of a, a magic black box with two red eyes. The two lights kind of lit up, and then the box kind of shrank. That kind of particular effect that we've seen a couple times this season. It sort of put me in mind of when Dale was floating in that sort of glass box. This strange sort of almost like, you know, what was very dimensional becoming less dimensional. Um, and of course, as you said, that seems to tie in with Philip Jeffries, maybe possibly. Um, you had a really interesting idea in your kind of quick react, Jeff, that I thought was interesting. The idea that this was sort of an emergency call being put out to all the doppelgangers in the world, uh, which I thought was the most compelling I- interpretation of that. But like, uh, what else did you kind of notice in that kind of in like the big kind of dirty Cooper moment of the? No, episode? I think you did a good rundown of that. Like, it made me wonder what happened to that box if he was destroying that box for some reason. If he was bringing that box to him, did that box teleport um, onto his person now? I half expected him <laughs> to disappear um, after making the phone call. I had speculated in an earlier recap that it definitely, we, we got the sense that, that these Black Lodge entities have some kind of affinity for electricity or with electricity. Maybe they can even travel through it. So I, as soon as they brought him a phone, I was like, oh, he's going to escape by transferring out of the wires. But no, he definitely did something. He accomplished something that he needed to do, and he's just going to count on escaping later. Or he sent out a signal. So I immediately thought, oh my gosh, it's like all the black, it was like he threw up a bat signal to all the evil doppelgangers of the world, or maybe all of the rogue Black Lodge entities that are out there, like, come get me. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I got to say, I'm suddenly remembering that haunting image from parts one or two, where that other like weird entity that was in the jail cell with Bill um, you know, we we panned down and he saw this man that was like covered in black soot or something in a contorted pose. And then he disappeared. And Lynch, in my interview with him a couple weeks ago, seemed to suggest that that we should keep on watching because maybe there's something that the show has something more to say about that moment. So maybe he called that guy, Darren, maybe he called that guy. Maybe all of these like evil, like specters around the world are going to like, you know, like bum rush the prison and break him out. (laughs) This is all but a setup for the fact that, that this show is actually a spinoff of monster squad. He called up all the public domain supervillains like Dracula and invisible man. Can, Can I just say, Jeff, I love talking about this show so much with you. The weary resignation with which you said, oh, he's going to escape by traveling through the wires (laughs) is one of my favorite things ever. (laughs) Jeff, I I think that about wraps it up. Uh, Do you have anything else to say besides the fact that uh, it it might be time for a damn good cup of joe? Damn good cup of joe. um, I'm off to drink uh, my cup of joe and send my kids to school, which means, of course, that I'm about to cry. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) Looking forward to seeing where our Um, conversation takes us next week. Everybody out there, what an episode. So much to dig through. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Love to hear hear your theories. Love to hear if you have any clarity to offer us in these decidedly lacking in clarity times. Uh, You can tweet at us. He's at EWDocJensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. You can email us if you have longer thoughts at TwinPeaks.EW.com. Hey, while you're at it, we've had some fun here today. We're chatting about all kinds of things. Vegas, Dakota, Buenos Aires. 
If you're having fun, too, we'd love to hear about it. You can rate and review us on iTunes. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week to talk about part six of Twin Peaks on Showtime.